BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What ought we to do about great art made by bad men? That's a question that undergirds Claire Dieter's new book, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, which explores whether and even how we can love the works of people who've committed morally reprehensible acts. Woody Allen, for example, or Bill Cosby? Dieter recalls her book, An Autobiography of the Audience, an effort to make sense of the complicated emotions we feel when engaging with the art of someone we used to love and now loathe. Have you struggled to give up a film, painting, music, clothing, whatever the creation of an artist who disappointed you? Tell us about it after this news. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. In 2017, when the Me Too movement gained its foothold, Claire Dieterer wrote a piece in the Paris Review titled, What Do We Do With the Art of Monstrous Men?, asking if we can continue to love their work if it's stained by the knowledge of terrible acts. The essay formed the basis for her new book, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, and as the title suggests, instead of focusing on the artists themselves, she focuses on us, the fan, the audience and the discomfort we feel, the questions we're forced to contend with, the actions we're told to take, separate the art from the artist, for example, when a creative we love does or says terrible things. But is that even possible? Can we separate them? What do you think? Who is an artist you struggle with? You can tell us by calling 866-733-6786, by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. And Claire Dieterer joins us now. Welcome to Forum, Claire. And it looks like we are trying to make that connection with Claire. In the meantime, for Claire Dieterer, the artist that she struggles with and the one that inspired much of her thinking on this question of what we do with the art of monstrous men is Roman Polanski, and she writes about it in the prologue of her book. 
She writes, it all began for me in the rainy spring of 2014 when I found myself locked in a lonely, okay, imaginary battle with an appalling genius. I was researching Roman Polanski for a book I was writing, and I found myself awed by his monstrousness. It was monumental, like the Grand Canyon huge, and void-like, and slightly incomprehensible. On March 10, 1977, I write these details from memory. Roman Polanski brought Samantha Gailey to his friend Jack Nicholson's house in the Hollywood Hills, and as we know then, he drugged and raped her. And yet, despite my knowledge of Polanski's crime, I was still able to consume his work, eager to, throughout the spring and summer of 2014. I watched the films, their beauty its own kind of monument, impervious to my knowledge of his crime. I wasn't supposed to love this work or this man. How was the object of boycotts and lawsuits and outrage? And yet here I was watching Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, on the couch in my living room. And Claire Dieter joins me now, I believe. Claire, are you there? Thank you for having me and for your patience. Oh, really glad to have you. And thank you for this book. And I was just reading sort of the dilemma that you were going through with regard to Roman Polanski, which preceded your Paris Review piece in 2017. Can you tell us some of the things you were wrestling with as you engaged with his films, like Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was coming to the work both as a longtime fan and a movie critic who thought his work was really important. And just it was very important to me that that those that particular set of films. And at the same time, I was coming to the work as somebody who had been predated myself as a young girl. So mm. I think you just read some of that. And it's it was a complex kind of um subjectivity to be in to be to be watching the films and even wanting to watch the films was complex I mean that's really where the dilemma started I just noticed that the even though I knew so much about Polanski I still wanted to watch the films and in fact when I watched them you know the the watching became complicated and certainly disrupted and yet I could still take in what I felt was great about them and so there was a way that just sitting on my couch watching this film became this kind of site of unease. And this was long before Me Too. And, you know, the it was not before Toronto Burke's Me Too by any means, but by before the explosion of online Me Too in the fall of 2017 with the accusations against Harvey Weinstein. And I thought it was just my problem. I thought I was sort of having a lonely struggle. And I didn't realize it was really everyone's problem. Yeah. I, I was struck that you sort of approached it initially as a solvable problem, meaning mm -hmm. that you could solve the problem of Roman Polanski by thinking it through. <laughs> when did you start to realize that maybe you couldn't? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a critic. I'm a person who is very given to overthinking every single problem. <laughs> and, and and I suspect that a lot of people who are going to come to this book are going to kind of have maybe have a similar viewpoint on life. Um, but I noticed when I began, you know, I started to really kind of churn the material in my brain and start to think about it. Roman Polanski. And of course, that led me to think about Woody Allen. And then on from there to think about the work of all these different artists. And when I broached the topic with friends, I just noticed how hot their responses were. You know, I had one friend, I said, oh, you know, I'm working on this piece of writing and Woody Allen comes into it. 
would you mind talking to me about it? This is a very smart um, software executive here in Seattle. And she said, oh, yes, I have very many thoughts about Woody Allen. And then when I spoke to her, she said, I hate him. He makes me so mad. And I thought, well, those aren't thoughts. Those are feelings. And I started to think about the fact that feeling plays such a massive role in our experience, both of the work, but also of our engagement with the maker's biography. You know, the feeling we have for the work is this love that we can't sort of will to go away. Mm-hmm. But the feeling we have about the maker, this this being upset by what we know of their biography, also can't just be wished or logicked away, no matter how hard we think about it. Yeah. Do you feel like, as a critic who thinks and you say overthinks about a lot of things, that you had to go through a process of also elevating the value of feeling or reaction, almost putting it on an equal plane with thinking? Yeah, I think that that's a lot of what I'm looking at in the book. You know, I'm, I am a critic, but I'm also a, a memoirist, which is such a funny thing to say, but I've written two memoirs. And when you're writing memoir, you know, really... If you're going to make it valuable, what you're really doing is examining your feelings and trying to say how things actually felt, what actually happened internally. If you can't do that, you can't really produce a memoir of value, in my opinion. And so I was I was sort of disciplined, already had this discipline of sort of chasing after my own, you know, racing around my own emotional landscape and figuring out what was going on in there. So... I did. I, I was kind of once I realized that the, it's a similar problem here. I needed to really get at what the feeling was, mm-hmm. and I was interested to find that there was very little writing dealing with either thinking or feeling around this stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, definitely not thinking, and very little, or definitely not feeling, and very little on thinking. Excuse me. And, and is that realization what enabled you to actually come up with this really great framework for the book, which is, as you describe it, an autobiography of the audience, as opposed to sort of relitigating the actions of the artist. (laughs) Relitigating is exactly right. You know, I think when people first hear about this book, or when I was first working on it, there was this perception that it's going to be this sort of monster catalog, like Mm -hmm. a giant Sears robot catalog from my childhood, where you'd go through and sort of point at all the different monsters. And, um, that is not what I've tried to do here. I I don't want the focus to be on the experience of the monsters, the sort of charismatic megafauna who are who are making the messes, though I, I do talk about some of the dynamics of that. What I really wanted to do was over and over again, reset the book from the perspective of the audience member. And in that and to really kind of lift up and valorize the subjectivity of that experience is one of the things I'm really trying to do. So although the book does move through several different people whom we can call monsters or not, you know, looking at the, the book uses biographies of people like Hemingway and, bio, and uh, Picasso to sort of get at some of the ideas I'm thinking about. That's always in those biographies are always in service of illuminating the audience experience. Yeah. Well, let me remind listeners, we're talking with Claire Dieter, author of Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, about how and whether we can continue to love art created by morally reprehensible people. And you, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts and questions about it, as well as 
your own experiences. This listener tweets, I used to see every new Woody Allen movie, but since the reveal of his less savory side, I started skipping his work. But it was not that hard since the quality of his later <laughs> movies were getting worse. He was gliding on his reputation and movies were not saying anything new. It sounds like this listener has found a kind of a compromise that is not dissimilar to one that you thought about with regard to Woody Allen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was interesting when this topic came up. Woody Allen is the person who's everyone mind, everyone's mind goes to and immediately they would let me know like you can't give up midnight in paris you know uh even if you're angry about the work or oh my god that guy makes me so uncomfortable you know each person having their own individual response um my boyfriend's mother you know he's really important in kind of uh his representation of jewish culture was so crucial for her so everybody's sort of coming with their own different perspective. And mine was very similar to the readers with, or the listeners, which was just, well, thank goodness the movies aren't good anymore because I don't have to worry about it. I just won't see them. <laughs> right. Let me go to caller Mark next in Pleasanton. Hi, Mark. You're on. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Go right ahead. My um, person is a little more obscure. It's the chess player, Bobby Fischer. Mm-hmm. When I was a when I was a kid, I was a big chess player, and he was he's the only world champion. He's from America. He's widely considered, if not the greatest chess player of all time, in the top two or three. But he's also a raging anti-Semite, and he cheered the 9-11 bombings. He became really a crazy person. And, you know, I don't know if you say he's worse than Roman Polanski, but he's a horrible person. And it's very hard to separate who he is as a person from thing that I love to do, which is play chess, which he was so good at. Yeah. And um, so I do have the same kind of struggle she does. I actually found that I, I am sort of able to separate it a little bit, though. I just, I just, I can still appreciate the art without liking the artist. Yeah. Uh, you are able to separate it a little bit, and I'm struck by that qualifier. And after the break, Claire, I really do want to dig into just sort of the dimensions of the quote-unquote fans dilemma as you say which is already coming out in the responses that we're getting from our listeners and listeners of course again 866-733-6786 the number to share your reflections on artists that you loved who you later found out did terrible things and the effect that it had on you or you can email forum at kqed.org or post on twitter facebook or instagram at kqed forum more after the break i'm mina kim Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're exploring this hour whether, and if so, how, we can love the works of people who've said and done terrible things with Claire Dieterer, who's written a new book called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. You may know Dieterer's work from her previous books, Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning, and Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses. Share your questions or thoughts with Claire at 866-733-6786. Tell us who's an artist you loved, who you later found out did terrible things. How did that make you feel? Can you still appreciate the art? Maybe you still love the art of an artist whose actions or morals you'd loathe, but you feel uncomfortable about it anyway. <laughs> you can email forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And I mentioned before the break, Clara, I did want to explore the dimensions of the fan's dilemma that you really bring out in this this book and have already come out in some of the things that that people people have have shared about sort of the sadness they feel mm-hmm. or even the way that they um, can rationalize uh, what they view based on the quality of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one of the things you talk about are how people also say, well, I I will consume it as long as I don't have to pay for it. If I'm not supporting <laughs> this person financially, then it's okay. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I say in the book, it's sort of like, is it okay if I go watch the movie at a friend's house while they're watching it? Um, Yeah, I think that just as there's many, many different kinds of audience members, there's many different solutions to this problem. This book is not prescriptive. Mm -hmm. I'm describing my experience of of the problem and hoping that that opens up people to think about their own experience of the problem. I personally, I don't feel that the um, the sort of, I think for a lot of people, boycotting it is meaningful, financially meaningful. And I'm less comfortable with the idea of um, a consumer choice being ethical in that kind of powerful way. I don't feel like as consumers, I feel like that's a sort of very narrow way to approach the problem. And in, in a funny way, kind of a disempowered way, we're more than consumers. We approach it as as, you know, sort of full people. And narrowing it down to a consumption response isn't my response. Yeah, I did want to go back to what Mark said, if that's yeah, okay. Please. Yeah, I really loved his call. Um, so he was talking about Bobby Fischer yeah. and somebody who's he's been a real fan of. And Bobby Fischer is almost like a sports figure, right? Like he's somebody you're a fan of in that way. And about Bobby Fischer's anti-Semitism and his disturbing remarks around 9-11. Um, and Mark said he can he does feel that he can separate the art from the artist or the the chess from the chess player a bit and but that he feels a great sadness and I actually think he's he's kind of sort of penetrated to the heart of the problem here, which is that we we can still consume the art and know what we know I think when when we hear critics or thinkers talk about this idea that you must separate the art from the artist, I just, I I think it's really unrealistic. You know, can I, as a former girl who 
has, you know, been predated by older men and who has a daughter really come to the film Manhattan by Woody Allen without feelings about the subject matter and about what I know about him. That's that's just not it's not a decision I'm making. Right. It's just something that's happening. So I really appreciate this idea that Mark brings up of I know what I know. It's real. I can't help knowing it. I can't unknow it. And I'm still going to consume what I love. And it's going to be complex. And there's going it's there's going to be sadness. Yeah. There's a point in your book where you say something that I found really complex, which is also the unfairness of not consuming it or missing out on it because of that subjectivity and that experience. I mean, you write about um, Roman Polanski, right? You say, why should I? Why should I be deprived of Chinatown or a sleeper? Um, right. I don't want to miss out on anything, right? Because I'm I'm human. And so there's a certain like, geez, they did something really bad. So now I have to miss out on it. It just feels so inherently unfair. I totally agree. I see. Yeah, yeah. You were a jerk. So I can't consume this <laughs> art that makes me feel happy to be alive. And I think that that, you know, obviously that perspective is much more in the forefront of people's minds when they're consuming a collaborative work like a film. So you have all these other people who've contributed, you know, and, and the auteur, the director has done something rotten. You know, again, I'm missing out on the work of all of these people because of one person. But yeah. I think it also goes for, you know, a singular person's work as well. Well, let me go to caller Vlad in Oakland. Hi, Vlad. You're on. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, so the one artist with whom I struggle tremendously, and actually it's not a struggle anymore, I've uh, given up on him entirely, is Van Morrison. Oh. Um, I was a huge Van Morrison fan in the 1980s. In the mid-1990s, I ran into him um, at a cafe, and it was actually a bookstore cafe, and I was so excited. I ran to the bookstore's rock and roll section, purchased a book that had a photo of a young Van Morrison performing. Uh, I borrowed a pen from the cash register, and with trepidation, I approached him, and he looked up at me and just barked at me, no, no. Um, and I, with a tail between my legs, I slunk away. Fortunately, the store, I was able to return the book. Um, and after that, I refused to listen to his music for probably 15 years. Um, gradually, I um, I returned. I mean, he's a fantastic musician. Uh, but then the pandemic started. And I think, Vlad, music we lost. That, oh, sorry. Um, the pandemic started and then what? Just so against. Um, everything uh, I stand for uh, mm. with respect to the shutdown, vaccination, uh, public health, that I, I've given him up again. And um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't expect uh, that I would listen to his music again uh, willingly. Uh, yeah. I drive a lot and I listen to music a lot in my car. And whenever I hear a song comes on the radio, I change station. Uh, Vlad, thanks for that. Thanks for that call. Um, you talk and think a lot about musical artists, uh, Claire, but your thoughts on what Vlad is saying and, and that connection. Yeah, I mean, I, I, he's talking about this is a great call, especially because I'm a huge lifelong Van Morrison fan. 
and personally attempted to listen to Veden Fleece last week with mixed results. So I really get it. Um, I, I, he's talking about two different disruptions. So I, one of the ideas I really come at in the book is, you know, this word monsters is really complicated, right? Mm-hmm. It's very finger pointy. Um, it's very othering. And it's very totalizing, of course. Like no one is entirely a monster. And one of the definitions I really come to is simply it simply means for me for the purposes of writing this book someone whose biography and behavior has disrupted or complicated our experience of the work and what's interesting about Vlad's call is that there's two separate kinds of complication going on here there's his personal experience of meeting van morrison in which case he you know joins legions of people who discovered that van morrison is is a very difficult person you know, one-on-one or in real life. And then there's a there's a political disruption of Van Morrison's really, really, this is such a ridiculous word, but really problematic response to the pandemic. So one has to do with, you know, an immediate kind of experience, and the other has to do with just the rotten things he said in recent years. And I think of, in the first instance, I think of that sonic youth line, kill your idols, I mean, I I really go out of my way to never meet anyone whose work is important to me because so rarely does it go well. Uh, And in the second case, again, there's a point at which the sadness becomes so terminal that we sort of can't continue, for some of us, can't continue listening to the work. And it's often complicated by an idea that Vlad brings up, which is also nostalgia, When an artist has been with you for your whole life, the nostalgia brings a different importance to it. And whether or not the nostalgia overrides, you know, this new information you have, in some cases that can happen. But it can also be, the nostalgia can also be something that we let go of. And actually, I don't know if you know the work of the critic um, Hanif Abdurraqib, incredible writer. He talks about, uh, I think, vis-a-vis Kanye, that we have to release nostalgia because it holds us too close to these people. And I think music is where a lot of this really emotive, um, overtly emotional, nostalgic stuff comes up because we don't sort of, we don't listen to music the same way we read a book or go to a museum to look at a painting. Music is, as Vlad was just saying, it just comes on the radio. It's woven into our lives and there's whole eras of our lives that become defined by a piece of music because it's just there, woven into the hours of our days. Yeah. Well, let me go to caller Anthony in San Jose. Hi, Anthony. Good morning. Um, yeah, I... I <clears throat> I think for me this problem gets much more interesting if we look at or examine the the characterization of these artists as monsters uh, because once we label them as monsters we kind of remove them from the um, the collective human our collective humanity but in fact there's human beings like me and you who have done some bad things in some cases really bad things. But that doesn't remove them from the collection of human beings. And so yeah. maybe it's possible to think of this as, you know, like this person, you know, did a really bad thing, but he also did some really great art. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. can I separate that? Can I can I not dismiss this person totally by neatly uh, categorizing him at, 
as a monster. Yeah. Can I categorize him as a human being who did a bad thing? And I try to separate the two. Well, Anthony, thanks. You're bringing up so many things that you touch on, Claire, in the book. You did talk a little bit earlier about the word monsters. And I think later you talk about how the way to describe what Anthony is talking about is maybe better to think about what they did as a stain or describing it as staining as opposed to describing the person as, as a monster, as a label, a monster. And, and you could talk a little bit about why that feels more appropriate. But I'm also struck by Anthony talking about how you or I can do bad things because you also talk about how close we are to becoming potentially a monster ourselves. I mean, so close that sometimes we are. Um, yeah. So, Anthony, I, I love this call from Anthony. Um, I did sort of start to address what he brings up, which yeah. is this problem of this sort of labeling of somebody as a monster. And it, it is language that rose during uh, during the 2017 Me Too era, and there was this kind of j'accuse quality of the finger pointing at the other person. And a lot of the the project of the book is to turn that back at the self, first of all, say, how does this apply to me? But also to kind of get at exactly what Anthony's talking about. People are more than one thing. And I eventually came to this metaphor of the stain, which is about the thing the person has done rather than the person, him or herself. Right. So the the stain is this idea that you've done this thing and it stains the work. That is, it ch- indelibly changes the work for the people who know about the biography, who know about the thing you've done. And that has occurred. We don't decide it's occurred. It's just something that happens and that we then, the audience, have to live with. And for me, that metaphor of the stain became the kind of uh, that became almost like a momentum for the book, for writing the book. Once I came toward that idea, because it was such a more expansive idea, a more expansive way to think about both audience and artist and more useful, frankly. Yeah. Well, Jamie tweets thoughts on Michael Jackson's adult career versus his Jackson 5 work as a kid. (laughs) This makes me smile because it's also another rationalization we sometimes make as a fan who loved work, which is like, is the Jackson 5 stuff okay? Because it was before he exploited and abused children, potentially, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I talk about that in the book, this idea, you know, even in fact, I bring it up in the context of the stain. It's like we know this thing about Michael Jackson, or we know what the accusers have said, and then that affects the work. And then you know, the question is, does the stain sort of travel backward in time, right? And affect the work. I mean, for me, I can't hear any Michael Jackson without thinking of that and without on some level thinking of the accusers, thinking of their experience. You know, it, it's not, you know, and I love Michael Jackson, but it's, you know, you know, I, the off the walls and incredible. I, I, I'm at a loss for words. I love the words <laughs> music so much. You know, my brothers, when we were little, our favorite song was Rock and Robin. Like it's yeah. woven into my childhood. And but that now is colored by this mm-hmm. knowledge of the stain and and that feeling of trying to <laughs> like I've thought about that feeling a lot of trying to travel back and, you know, to, to go to the work of the artist before he did 
the thing that stains the work. And so I talk about this sort of less complicated feeling about watching Polanski films from before the rape occurred. But ultimately, all of it, for me, becomes disrupted by the knowledge. Well, John writes, my siblings and I grew up with the early Bill Cosby records. We knew them all by heart, and we sprinkled our conversation with Cosbyisms for the decades to follow. It was such innocent humor. Since the revelations of his horrific crimes, his humor still bubbles up in us, but the innocence is long gone. Mm. I can still remember, I can still sometimes feel that original joy of his humor, but it's forever tainted. Feels like part of my childhood has been yanked from under my feet. You know, we've been talking a little bit about the bargains we make to try to still consume the art, right? Like (laughs) before they actually did the thing or we're not paying for it or we're, you know, trying to to be conscious of it while we look at it, but trying not to let it disrupt us and so on. And I was thinking about why we make these bargains and why we're so willing to to wrestle. And in part, I think it's kind of like what John describes. If it's something that was really a part of your childhood, something that you connect with nostalgia-wise, as you say, but it's also if you loved them, like you connected in some intimate way with this artist, because as you write, there wouldn't be a dilemma if you didn't really love, right. if you hadn't loved them to begin with, right? Right. Yeah. I, I, I love that John said that the listening or thinking about the humor of Bill Cosby represents a kind of innocence. And that's actually the exact phrase I use about Bill Cosby in the book. Are we when we watch the Cosby show, are we just watching this this kind of demonstration of our lost innocence? And I think one of the things, you know, there's different ways that work can become disrupted. And you know, with Woody Allen, I think the work becomes disrupted because the work is so close to his own behavior. With Bill Cosby, what he made and what he did are so radically at odds with each other that it renders the work almost unwatchable. But the unwatchability or the decision about its unwatchability is, again, a subjective decision. And the love of the work, as you say, really depends on the person watching. And I I want to just very much emphasize that my the importance of Bill Cosby to me is very different than it might be to the experience of, you know, if I'd been a young black woman growing in the middle school in the 1980s, right? It could be, you know, and what the Huxtables meant at that moment. And Margot Jefferson obviously has written on this. Um, I think that, you know, there's a way in which we, if we start to decide that an authority is going to decide what's acceptable, what's great art that's worth the crime... Who's going to be that authority? Why do I get to decide for someone else? And why should they decide for me? We're all coming to it with our own experiences, our own histories, our own complications. Yeah, the complications of consuming art of someone that we loathe, that we used to love, the actions that we find reprehensible when their actions were what drew us to them in the first place. We're talking about it all with Claire Dieterer. Her new book, Monsters of Fans, Dilemma, talks about all of that complexity, and we'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with critic and memoirist Claire Dieter about how or even whether we can continue to love art created by morally reprehensible people from people who have done or said awful things. Can we separate the art from the artist? And you, our listeners, are sharing lots of comments and calls. Let me go to Jill in San Mateo, who's on the line. Jill, you're on. Hi, can you hear me okay? I can. Great. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. And thank you so much for this discussion. Um, I'm a writer and an English professor. And in 2017, I published a book of literary criticism slash personal essay called Life Lessons Harry Potter Taught Me. Mm So now many years later, I'm kind of having to grapple with not only my relationship to Harry Potter, because, you know, I believe J.K. Rowling's comments are harmful. I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, but also my own love for the series. You know, Harry Potter is a unique animal because it has such cultural, you know, staying power. And, you know, I'm part of the generation that grew up with the series. So like has been discussed, that nostalgia is strong. The characters in the book, you know, feel like real people to me. I grew up with them when I was 13. You know, I kind of came of age with the characters. So to me, that's a particularly kind of unique heartbreak and and pain. And I think stain is such a perfect metaphor Mm. for it. You know, I've talked to many trans people about this as I've interviewed them, you know, as I've tried to think about what to do with my book, what to do with my work. And, you know, some people say, throw it in the trash, never speak of it again. And I think that's fair, you know, not my own work, but, you know, JK Rowling's work. um, I think, I think that's totally fair, but some other trans people, you know, or LGBTQ people feel like, I get to have my relationship with the series and she cannot take that from mm-hmm. me. I'm still going to read it to my children. Um, yes. And so now I have a three-year-old and so I've started to think about, okay, will I share this with her? How will I share this with yes. her? You know, we hmm. kind of decided we're not going to spend money on Harry Potter anymore, but like Claire said, like we are more than just consumers. Um, and yeah. so I think Whew. for me, I think a lot about like, just facing the stain, you know, will I read it to my daughter? I think probably, um, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's a continued process. Yeah, Jill, you are raising writers, so many really interesting things. And of course, uh, you devote an entire chapter to this, um, Claire. And, and if there, if it's okay, I would actually love to read something you wrote about this mm-hmm. um, that I just thought was really lovely in terms of just getting at the emotions around this for people who grew up 
loving Harry Potter who have built community around their love of Harry Potter or who have deep nostalgia the way Jill has as well. And you write the backlash across the internet. And this is against, of course, J.K. Rowling after she said those transphobic things. You write, the backlash across the internet was a great fury. Many of the former Potter kids were trans, and they were rightly very angry. But underneath the fury was a deep sadness, the sadness of the staining of something beloved. Rowling's tale of a place where otherness was accepted didn't in the end include them. And I just thought that that really did get at just some of the emotions that I've also heard from people who have loved Harry Potter. But do you want to talk a little bit about... About, you know, this person and how they figure into the book, what part of the audience experience or audience dilemma they illuminate? Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, I love that call from Jill. Yeah. And the, the reckoning with your own work is such a difficult thing to do. And then to reckon with how you're going to present Rowling's work to your child. I really respect your um, your rigor in looking at this and thinking about it. Um, I think that... The reason, you know, I didn't include very many ultra contemporary instances in this book. There, most of the th most of the people I talk about are from history, and I think, you know, it's pretty obvious that if I had decided to deal with every um, every accusation, every somebody called it in an interview last week kerfuffle, we can also call it. Yeah. A crime. You and I were referring to these disruptions as things earlier in this conversation. But if I were to engage with every single one that came up, you know, I would never finish the book. And I did think about creating an epilogue where I would just list every single one of these that happened over the course of writing the book. But it, because they just are unending. And how do you choose what you're going to write about and think about? Well, Rowling was really important to me. Um, because of the intensity of the fan relationship with the work, right? So Rowling isn't just the, the Harry Potter books, as Jill touched upon, weren't just books that we read. They were a collective experience. They were something that there's a whole generation of kids who grew up with this as part of their identity formation. They talked back to the books through, you know, through Tumblr, through the Internet. They created bands about the books. You know, I've been to Wizard Rock concerts. I, I get what the whole scene is like. I've been to Harry Potter conventions. There was an intense love of the work. And we do live in this moment of fandom. We live in this moment where the fan the obsessive, the person, the super fan, the person who's so connected to the to the uh, maker that there's almost a collapse between the two. We live in a time where that's ascendant and has become really pop, pop you know, really dominant. And I think that it kind of goes back to what we were talking. You know, it, it is a consumer role. It's like this intense kind of establishment of a consumer role. I am the biggest fan. And I am almost merged with this thing I love. And with Harry Potter, these were kids going through this emotionally intense fanship. And so I think that the ground it's the reason I wanted to write about it was it really gets at this um this dynamic of the parasocial relationship that's so much part of our own lives now that we live so much online. And again, the Harry Potter kids were really the first truly online generation. And the parasocial relationship is this old sociological term that you see used a lot on the Internet now and simply means when we feel that we have a relationship 
with the objects of our fanship or our adoration, almost to the point where we feel like they can see us individually. And it's a fascinating dynamic and has a history that goes all the way back to the beginning of broadcasting itself, not just to the beginning of the internet. But these kids were growing up in this intense parasocial relationship with the work, with Rowling, all of that. And then all of a sudden, and, and a lot of kids who, or some of the kids, I won't even say a lot, but some of the kids who seek that relationship are kids who are maybe struggling in their lives. Maybe they don't feel they belong at home or at school or wherever. Maybe they're queer. Maybe they're, you know, having gender dysphoria. Maybe they're trans and they're figuring it out. For those kids to come to the point, you know, where they've come to self-acceptance and they're adults and then to receive this message from Rowling about their I, their existence, in fact, you know, this this erasure, this whether or not they can or should exist in this particular way in the world. It's deeply, it's almost the most emotionally um, profound story in the book to me in terms of how many people it has affected. Yeah. Well, Linda writes, does this dilemma pertain only to contemporary figures or to facts that most people know about? We know that Wagner was a horrible anti-Semite. Is his music still beautiful? Ezra Pound, the poet, was a fascist. Should we still be studying him? I took a course about Beethoven and found that he treated his sister-in-law and young nephew in abominable ways. Hardly anybody knows this but me and Beethoven scholars. What do I do with that? Well, I mean, more of us know it now that we've seen Tar, which is sort of, I think Tar is such a hilarious way of coming at this sideways, the scene where there's this kind of over-the-top exchange between Lydia Tarr and a student and and both characters, both they, they rep- represent separate sides of the debate. One debate, one side saying, you must separate the art from the artist, and the other side saying, I can't. You know, so it's very dramatized in one of the opening scenes in Tarr. Um, I absolutely think this is meaningful in terms of figures from the past, and I write about them quite a bit. And I actually think they undergo a lot of the same... It's they we sort of approach them with the same kind of set of responses we do with contemporary figures. The response, again, is subjective. And I think this biography is maybe more widely known or more wrestled with than maybe the the caller or writer realizes that a lot of people are really suffering and struggling with this material. Um, and I do write about Wagner do. <laughs> and at length, who, who you know, the, with his stunning anti-Semitism. I mean, it wasn't just that he wrote Judaism and music, which is one of the most shockingly anti-Semitic pieces of writing. You know, it's just stunning. But more than that, he just he would never stop talking about his anti-Semitism. So it, it's for me, maybe that has one perspective. But, you know, acknowledging the fact that that Wagner was, you know, is rarely, if ever, performed in Israel. Um, And that's a different, specific uh, uh, audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, Jen writes, Michael Jackson was such an important pop icon, particularly for young black girls back in the 70s. For the first time, we could have a crush on a young idol who looked more like us. Michael's beautiful brown skin, perfect natural hair, dazzling smile were irresistible. I wanted to be friends with him and his gigantic family. That ended abruptly when I learned that he had more than one inappropriate encounter with young boys later on. My mind could not fathom it, and my heart was broken. I do still listen to his music occasionally. Ironically, Man in the Mirror 
was my favorite of mm. his tunes. You know, it's interesting. I think you said this at the beginning where you're not prescriptive. And I, I think there was this hope for me when I was pitched your book <laughs> and to have you come on the show. I was like, oh, great. She'll have puzzled this out for me. Right? <laughs> she will have gotten to all the complexities and analyzed this and we will have landed somewhere. And the reality of the situation, as you know, we sort of hinted at from the very beginning, is that there's no real one right answer. There's no calculator, as you joked. Wouldn't it be great if you could have a calculator online where you could enter their misdeeds against their works and then be given a verdict of whether you should consume their art or not? There isn't that kind of a thing. So what do you think is the value of excavating this, the value of having this kind of conversation about all the contours of being a fan, of loving an artist who has done terrible things. Well, I think first of all, it's ultimately one you know one of the major projects of the book is to push against the idea of critical authority and to return the decision making and the the kind of feeling making, I guess, to the viewer and to not think that there's some exterior person who's going to to decide what's great enough to consume. You know, you get to decide that. And I think that dive into the value of subjectivity, into the value of feeling, um, for me, that felt, you know, important and, and worthwhile. At the end of the book, I sort of take a turn, a swerve into the idea of love. And I start to talk about a friend who comes up and tells me about, comes up to me we're at a campfire and tells me about his relationship with his um, stepfather, who's a very, very rotten person. And, uh, you know, has ended up in prison and really hurt my friend. And he said, but I still love him, even after everything. And I think for me, the book took on a new quality of urgency as I realized that this question can be not just an interesting and important question unto itself, but it can be a kind of laboratory, laboratory for larger questions about human love, about what we do about people in our lives who hurt us. I mean, we don't cancel people in our, generally people in our lives who hurt us. Yeah. And also about ourselves, how much, you know, what, how are we monstrous and how do we handle that? We're talking with Claire Dieter and you are listening to Forum. I mean, Kim. A lot of comments. Let me see if I can get to it. Just a few more. David writes, Clint Eastwood made some great movies throughout his whole career. I do not like his politics. Mike Love of the Beach Boys is a problem. Loved Mad Max, but I have a strong dislike of Mel Gibson. Van the Man Morrison, one of my favorite singers, is problematic. <laughs> I do not buy new Van Morrison music. Another listener writes, how do things change, if at all, if the artist is already dead and their misdeeds do not become known until after their death? You can answer that, but I guess one of the things I did want to just ask you, which Mimi's comment is reminding me of, is how this process of wrestling with an artist's misdeeds is different in this moment compared to other times. Social norms change all the time. And so we look back on somebody and say, whoa, the things that we normalize and accepted about them are really bad now, right? But what's different about us going through this process now? And Mimi's question about, you know, there are things not being known. I really feel like, and this is something you touch on too, it's really hard not to know things about people today. <laughs> like we exactly. are constantly bombarded with knowledge, whether we want it to happen upon it or not about somebody. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that you've you've just answered your own question. So that's great. I think that that is exactly what makes this a, a specific moment in time. And and I think a, a great moment in time, an urgent moment in time to talk about this, because we now live in this moment where we do not escape biography. You know, it's sort of I write in the book about how it's falling on our head all the time. It's almost like a sickness. We can't. That's what the Internet. It's sort of the the gas you pour into the Internet is the biographies of everyone. And uh, I think that because we can't escape it, suddenly these questions are they become urgent in a way they weren't when I was a kid. When I was a kid, it was very hard. I'm 56. It's very hard. It was very hard to know things about the artists we love. We waited for biographies to come out, you know, about maybe a rock musician we like. And besides that, you might pick up a fact or two, you know, about a writer in The New Yorker or a musician in Rolling Stone, but it was very difficult. Now you can't not know. So, you know, the the pro, the, the urgency of the question moves beyond, like, the kind of big fan who will read a biography of an artist to all of us who are inundated with this material all the time. Yeah. You can't not know, but you also get to see sometimes very immediately a huge reaction to from yes. others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. I, and again, that's, you know, it, it's really interesting, the huge reaction, the outrage machine, all that stuff. I think it's it's. It's non-useful, you know, the, the, that kind of the, the kind of pig pile aspect of the way that that we process and, ma- and manage our reaction to accusations. But it's really important that people say what happened to them. Right. So yes. it's true that that overwhelming reaction can make moving through the world more difficult or more complicated. But at the, the kernel, at the core of that is, you know, people who've been hurt saying something that happened. And that project of of that collective saying remains incredibly important and also kind of the platform on which this book and its questions rest. Yes. And so how do we, have you landed on a healthy way that we acknowledge there's a problem or at least not pretend there was no problem with somebody? Healthy. That's a great word. I love it. Um, I think that well, I don't know. Do you mean a private acknowledgement to oneself, or do you mean a public acknowledgement? I mean a public one. Mm, so, like, as a as a person consuming the work, how do I publicly acknowledge that it's a problem? Or how do we? You mentioned there was a woman who went around the Met and MoMA and added cards to the bios of people or the descriptions of their art that would actually list the negative things they did. Does that constitute a healthy way of just making sure we're always aware of it and making that awareness known and we just I, have 30 seconds yeah. yeah i think our our i think that for pushing institutions toward a response is the best use of our time i think we can ask for accountability not just within ourselves but within the institutions that you know that show art well claire Dieter, thank you for this very um comprehensive meditation on on the fans' dilemma (laughs) around (laughs) monsters. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun. And thank you, listeners, and thank you, Lulu Ralda and Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. Claire Dieter's book is Monsters, A Fans' Dilemma, and you have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.